0: Welcome. Here is this past Sunday sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Welcome to Grant Memorial. My name is Cam. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are uh, so thrilled that you have joined us today. Uh, Now, for those of you who are here for the first time, or perhaps the first time in a while, uh, we're currently in the final stages of what will have been a 17-month study in the New Testament book of Mark, which tells of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, And today, we find ourselves at a transitional moment in Jesus' earthly life where he spends his final few hours of freedom before being taken into custody, which is a reality that would last until his crucifixion. Now, over the past uh, few weeks, we have begun to see this plot unfold as one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, made a deal with the ruling Jewish religious elite that he will deliver Jesus into the hands into their hands so that they may put an end to his ministry. This was an arrangement that Jesus was all too aware of. And so I uh, invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Mark 14 starting at verse 32 as we witness Jesus in the final moments before his arrest. Mark 14, starting at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began uh, to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners rise. Let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we read it, as we remember, Lord, what you walked through, Lord, that we would be changed as a result of encountering this. Amen. Okay, so our text picks up today after Jesus has has just led his disciples through a traditional Seder meal celebrating the Jewish Passover, as was customary during the Feast of Unleavened Bread that was going on in Jerusalem at the time. And if you remember from two weeks ago, as he led the meal, Jesus reinterpreted the traditional meaning of the elements, teaching the disciples that that just as the Passover lamb served as a substitute so that the Israelites in ancient Egypt could live... He was about to lay down his life so that all who trust in him may find eternal life. He promised them that no matter what it is that happens next, he will bring about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And at the end of that passage, we read that, that when they finished the meal, they left the upper room where they had been dining, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, As today's passage begins, the text specifies just where they go as they travel out of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. And that place is called the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, what do we know about the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, the name Gethsemane literally means olive press in Hebrew. And so this particular garden was likely more of an olive grove or a large cluster of olive trees with a mill close by for pressing the olives. Uh, We know that this particular garden was located on the western slopes of the Mount of Olives near the road between the temple in Jerusalem and the village of Bethany where Jesus had been staying for the week. Now, we also know that this garden seemed to be a regular destination for Jesus, likely for prayer and rest during their travels back and forth between Bethany and Jerusalem. We know this from the Gospel of John, which says, "...Jesus had met there with his disciples." Jesus had often met there with his disciples. In fact, the frequency of their visits to Gethsemane, according to John, is why Judas would have such an easy time finding Jesus that night. And so, once more, for what would be the final time, Jesus seeks the Father in the shade of the olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, upon reaching the garden, our text says, Jesus leaves the majority of the disciples to sit in one spot. Well, he brings Peter, James, and John deeper into the garden with him before leaving them to travel even further into the garden alone. And it's during this progressive walk through the garden where we read the extent of the emotion that Jesus is experiencing. Verse 33 says that Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And verse 34 expands on this as Jesus says to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Not often we hear Jesus say these types of words. I'm not sure that there is a more humanizing passage in all of scripture as it relates to Jesus. There isn't a more stark reminder of Jesus' humanity than in this scene. And I think that there's a danger if we skimmed by and missed this. You see, I think we often, uh, whether we try to or not, get caught up thinking about Jesus as some uh, stoic, impenetrable figure with, with all the answers in control of every situation, almost to the point of being void of emotion as he simply trusts God and watches his Father's plan unfold. But we're reminded in moments like this. That Jesus was fully human, complete with anxieties, fears, and desires, just as we all are. Now, it is true that Jesus was also, the entire time, fully God as well. Jesus' nature, his makeup, did not change. His essence was still that of God. Jesus never ceased to be God, but as we read in Philippians 2.7, in becoming human... He gave up his rights as God, or his divine privileges, as the New Living Translation puts it. He fully took on human form, complete with all the limitations of humanness, needing to navigate emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual distress. And that's what we see here in the garden. Jesus wrestling with these limitations. Verse 33 says that he was deeply distressed or or anxious as is possibly the better translation well of course he was in the garden he was staring certain death in the face can you imagine the anxiety if you were on death row ready to walk the green mile towards your execution this this is just the beginning of what jesus was experiencing how many of us uh, get anxious simply pulling up to the Canada-U.S. border, even though you've done nothing wrong? Right? Or how many of us can't sleep or stress out because we have an important meeting coming up that if we're really honest doesn't really matter in the long run in terms of our employment, let alone our lives? Well, Jesus, in comparison, is literally about to be arrested by an angry mob, get beaten, tortured, humiliated, and killed in arguably the most inhumane way known to man, all while bearing the punishment, by the way, for everything that anyone has ever done wrong. And that's not even the worst part. That's not even the predicament or the cup that Jesus was petitioning to release. You see, Jesus, up until this point, who has been in unbroken, perfectly loving community with the Father for all of eternity past, would for the first time experience complete loneliness and isolation, indescribably feeling himself to be God forsaken as he was separated and alienated from the Father. Think about that. God Himself, in the form of Jesus Christ, would experience God-forsakenness. This is a concept, friends, that we cannot even begin to understand. But, church, what we can understand is how real this is, how absolutely exceptional and unparalleled these circumstances are. And the fact that that Jesus is God and trusted the Father does not negate the legitimacy of the anguish that he was experiencing. His distress was real, severe, and intense. As Luke, the physician, describes in his gospel, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, many people read uh, this description, Luke's description, as a metaphor or simile, and that alone would be enough to get the point of his anguish across, but I'm not actually certain that Luke was exaggerating one bit. You see, there is a real, rare, but real condition called hematidrosis that actually causes one sweat to contain blood temporarily. You see, the sweat glands are surrounded by uh, tiny blood vessels that can constrict and then dilate to the point of rupture, causing blood to effuse into the sweat glands. And among the causes of hematidrosis, according to medical encyclopedias and journals, you can look it up yourself, are extreme fear and intense emotional stress, often associated with those who face imminent death or torture, as is the case with Jesus in the garden. It's interesting, isn't it? And so Jesus here is is not simply sad, right? Let's understand that about this text. Jesus isn't simply sad or asking God casually if there, you know, there might be another way. No, he's experiencing the most extreme of human emotions, typically limited to captured soldiers and martyrs. And he prepares to live out his own words in Mark 10.45 that he would give his life as a ransom for many. Now, all of this confirms uh, the Apostle Paul's words in Hebrews 4.15. He says this, he says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Friends, Jesus experienced it all. And this moment in the garden is proof that whatever stressful or overwhelming situation you may find yourself in, Jesus understands and can empathize with us. Another point of note in this moment. Is that when he says, My soul is grieved in verse 34, Jesus is identifying himself with or potentially as the righteous sufferer in the lament psalms in Psalm 42 and 43, who asks, Why are you grieved, my soul? Why so disturbed within me? You see, in his lowest point, Jesus turns to the psalms of lament. To express his anxiety before God and his friends. And in doing so, even on his way to the cross, he continues to affirm who he is. He is the ultimate suffering servant from the Old Testament scriptures, he is the Messiah. Well, as we continue to read the text, we see that when Jesus found himself in this place, in this moment of extreme distress, his default was to pray. Verse 35, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Now, we're going to come back to verse 36 in a moment to explore how and what Jesus prayed. But for now, it's sufficient to say that Jesus prayed passionately out of the depths of his emotion for an hour before he came back to check on the disciples. Verse 37 to 38. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, aside from the obvious embarrassment for the disciples in this verse, that they fell asleep while Jesus was in utter agony, there's a little more going on with Jesus' words here. Do you remember a few weeks back when we studied the Olivet Discourse back in Mark 13, when Jesus prophesied about the destruction of the temple and, uh, and the elements of the end of the age? Well, do you remember the common refrain throughout that monologue? Keep watch. Right? We heard that over and over again. Be ready, be alert, keep watch. With the entire discourse ending in Mark 13, 35, and 36 with this. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Here, Jesus does literally find them sleeping after simply an hour and the implication of the words that are still ringing in their head just from a day ago is how will you ever live a lifestyle of watchfulness in light of what is to come if you can't even keep watch for one hour and Jesus uh, unfortunately for Peter singles him out But he does this because just prior to this, Peter emphatically declared to Jesus that even if all else fall away, he will stand with Jesus until the end, right? There's no way that I will be one of those who doesn't keep watch until the end, right? There's a sense here in which Jesus shows them how ill-prepared they are to do as they have claimed, to follow him no matter what it takes, to hold tight and to keep watch until the end. And Jesus reminds them all in verse 38 that while the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. He says, you talk a big game, but there's more to following me than simply talk. Well, to that, the disciples have no talk. They have no words. And Jesus invites them to join him in prayer, not only for him, but that they would be able to resist temptation to close their eyes, both physically and spiritually. Well, verse 39 tells us that Jesus goes off and prays as he did before, saying the same thing our text says. And this time, the disciples hold up their end of the deal. Well, maybe for a few minutes. Verse 40, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. I love that line. They didn't know what to say. Him. Right? It's like the kid who's caught with his hand in the cookie jar or something. It's just there's no explanation. Right? There was no excuse. There was no justification. Just just heads hung in shame, I'm sure. Now, before we get too down on the disciples, have you ever been that tired? So tired that your eyelids literally feel heavy and it takes everything in you not to succumb to the sleep instinct? Some of you are wondering how appropriate it would be to share that you feel this way while driving. We've all been there. It just happened to come at a bad time for the disciples as they sat silently at the end of a long day in the darkness of the garden. And considering that there are no recorded words of Jesus here, it seems like he may have just rolled his eyes or shook his head and headed back to continue praying for the third time. And unfortunately, when he returns for the third time, nothing much has changed. Verse 41 and 42, returning the third time, he said to him, "said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hours come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners, he says, as the mob starts to approach. Rise, let's go. Here comes my, my betrayer. Now, by this time, there's no point in Jesus uh, belaboring the disciples' failure here as Judas has shown up along with the mob and things were about to change drastically. But you'd better believe the disciples hopped up and ended their slumber when Jesus uttered the words, here comes my betrayer. Isn't that a great place to end? Right? I should have a big to be continued slide up behind me, right? Here comes my betrayer next week. Now, we will unpack what happens next, next week, as we move on in this narrative. But before we do, before we move on from this passage, from this text, before we turn the page, I think it's important for us to pause and examine the way that Jesus prays here in his greatest time of need. And I think it's important so that we can let Jesus' example speak to us about how we ought to pray when we find ourselves in pain, in despair, or filled with uncertainty. And so to examine the the first few points, I, I want us to take a closer look at verse 36, the specific words that Mark records out of the mouth of Jesus. Now, just as an aside, this is the only recorded prayer of Jesus in Mark's gospel, besides a little later on when we'll hear Jesus cry out to God from the cross. We, We have read along the way that Jesus prayed in chapter 135, 646, but Mark's recorded prayer of Jesus is found here in chapter 14 at verse 36. This is what he prays. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now we know that Jesus prayed uh, much longer than this. Right? These aren't the only words that Jesus prayed. He was in the garden for hours, but this is the gist of Jesus' prayer in his most trying hour. So let's unpack it, and a couple verses after it, piece by piece, to explore what it looks like to pray like Jesus. And the first thing that we notice in this prayer is that Jesus acknowledges God. Verse 36, he starts by saying, Abba, Father. Jesus starts off acknowledging his audience by declaring who he is and the relationship that they have. Now, some Christians try to emphasize that the Aramaic Abba is akin to Jesus addressing God as daddy, like a small child in relation to their adult parent. But that doesn't actually catch the intention of the language here. First of all, Abba was a common word used by even adult children for their fathers, so the language doesn't necessarily lean that way. And in this context, we know that Jesus is not a small child. Jesus is not ignorant or naive. The title that Jesus uses, simply translated, my father, similar to how we would use it, connotes the level of intimacy that they have with one another. God is not distant or far off or simply an acquaintance. He is Jesus own father who is loving and cares deeply for his son right this is about the confidence that Jesus has in praying to the one who cares deeply for him as his very own and the amazing thing about this for us is that the Bible says that all of those who have received Jesus those who believe that Jesus is Lord can approach God as our father as well in complete confidence that when we pray, we are heard by, by the one who loves us as his own. John 1, 12 says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 8, 14 to 16, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you are live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Right? If, if you have come into God's family, you are God's child. He is your good father who loves you so much and you can approach him with confidence in the love that he has for you no matter where you may find yourself. Now Jesus moves on from the title, yet he continues this, uh, this action of addressing God by declaring what it is that he can do. Verse 36, he continues, everything is possible for you, Jesus says. Not only does God love us, but he has the ability to act out of love. Right? He can act out of that love. I have had the privilege of traveling to some underdeveloped nations over the years. And one thing that that I have seen is love without means. Right? I have seen parents unable to support their kids. Not because they didn't love them, they surely did, but because they didn't have the means to provide for them. Love and means are not one and the same. And what Jesus says here is that God is not only loving, but that he has the means to do anything that he desires for our own good and for his glory. He can and will take care of us. He will provide for His children whom He loves deeply. We can approach God with the understanding that whatever is best, He can accomplish. And that confidence leads us to the next thing we learn from Jesus' example. We can ask anything. Since God can do anything and everything. We can ask him to do anything and everything. All right, church, we discussed this a few months ago. We should be people who pray big prayers because we have a big God. We do not need to be bashful about our requests as if we're unsure if we're asking too much. We're invited to pray Truthfully, we can be honest with God. We can tell Him what we want. Look at Jesus here in the garden. Verse 35 and 36. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba Father, he said, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Right? Jesus plainly tells the Father what he desires in that moment, what he wants that the hour may pass from him, that the cup would be taken from him. Jesus asked the Father, if there's any other way, I would rather not endure the humiliation, the torture. I would rather not experience isolation from you. If there are two doors, I prefer to choose the other one. Do you hear that honesty and boldness? And so church, when we find ourselves in difficulty, it is not wrong or bad, or unrighteous, or sinful, to tell God what we would prefer. Jesus was completely righteous, without sin, and he prayed in this way. If you are sick, ask God for healing. If you are struggling financially, ask God for provision. If you are anxious or distressed, ask God to intervene. It is not a lack of faith in God to tell him what you would prefer. It is not a lack of trust in God to, return, to request an alternative way. We do not need to pull any punches. We are open to share our hearts with God, to share how we feel about what we see him doing or what we don't see him doing. Read the Psalms. You'll find this kind of honesty built into the liturgy of God's people for thousands of years. We, like Jesus, are welcome to pray whatever we are feeling, whatever we want, to be honest with God in absolutely everything. As we're encouraged in Ephesians 6, 8, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Now, the thing to remember as we bring our honest requests to God is that just because we pray something does not mean that we will receive it just as we request it. He may absolutely grant us what we request, but that is not always the case. In our text today, Jesus asked honestly for the Father to remove the burden of the cross from him. And, spoiler alert the Father doesn't do as Jesus asked. The mob still shows up at the end of this passage. Jesus will still be tried, tortured, and crucified. Why? Because God the Father knows best. Right, while we are welcome and encouraged to ask for whatever we want, God is still welcome to do whatever he desires because he knows best. As uh, Pastor Timothy Keller says about prayer, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. Isn't that encouraging? Right. God will either give us what we ask or he'll give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. You see, God sees everything and understands completely even what we can't see. And knowing this, when Jesus prayed with his limitations, he presented his honest requests subject to God's sovereignty, subject to God's will which is our third point that we consider as we consider praying like Jesus. When we pray, we submit to God. When we pray, we submit to God. In the same breath that Jesus presented his request to God, he submitted himself to the will of God. Look at the end of verse 36. Take this cup from me, yet, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus' request included a yet. And our prayers, if we are to pray like Christ, must always include a yet. Right? We tell God what we want, but we trust God to do what is best. Trust and submission are essential to pray like Jesus. And this is the same way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in what we now refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 9-10. to he said this, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right? This actually sounds really similar to this prayer we're looking at today, doesn't it? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right, in this teaching on prayer, Jesus teaches before any requests are made that we submit everything to God's will being done over our own. Praying like Jesus is making requests, but trusting that God's will will always prove to be better than our own and walking in obedience regardless of how our prayers are answered. Now, there are two more points that the text goes on to teach beyond verse 36 about Jesus' practice of prayer and how we can take his example. You see, after Jesus acknowledges God, makes his request, submits himself to God's will, Jesus invites others to join him. Did you notice that? Jesus didn't hide his circumstances from his disciples, or at least Peter, James, and John, depending on how we read this text. First, in verse 34, he explicitly said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. How's that for honesty? And then in verse 38, he invites them to join him in prayer. Right? Jesus, while aware that he must shoulder the weight of what is to come on his own, does not hesitate to invite others to share the burden of prayer with him. And so when we, friends, face trials and inevitably come up against all sorts of things, the biblical model, the Jesus model, is to invite others to pray with you. Now this means being vulnerable. This means being honest. This means pursuing meaningful Christian community. But this also means that you are held up and supported along the way. So when you are struggling, ask others to join you in prayer. Whether that's your friends or your small group who hopefully respond a little better than the disciples did. Or you can reach out to the church. We as a staff team promise to pray along with you and lift up your requests. But you do not need to bear the weight of your circumstances alone. Okay, can I say that again? You do not need, in fact, you are not meant to bear the weight of your circumstances alone. You are not meant to struggle by yourself. Even Jesus didn't do this. He invited a bunch of losers to pray with him. We've been given one another so that we can carry each other's burdens, so we don't have to walk alone if we can only get over our pride. As we're encouraging Galatians 6 to carry each other's burdens, and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. James 5:16 says, "Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed." The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Or as we read before in Ephesians 6:18, "Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people." Friends, prayer is not a solo sport. It's a team sport, right? If you are here today, look around you. Seriously, look around. These are your teammates. Use your teammates. Well, finally, Jesus shows us that praying like him involves repetition, right? Involves repetition. Did you notice what Jesus does after he finishes praying? He prays again. And then after that, he prays again. Right? Jesus doesn't pray once, then check it off his list, and, and now move to some practical steps. But he persists in prayer. Now, why does Jesus pray again? Right? And, and why should we repeat the same prayers? Right? If God already knows what we want, and he knows what is best, why do we need to continue to engage with him? Well, because it allows us to continue to engage with him. For Jesus, prayer was spending time with God in his time of greatest need. The Father is who he chose to be with in his distress. It wasn't simply about his requests. It was about his relationship. And it ought to be the same for us. You see, prayer is not about simply making requests. Prayer is about communion with God, communicating, being with him. Prayer is about growing in our relationship with God, developing trust, deepening our faith, learning about who God is and how he acts. And prayer is about changing our own hearts so our desires line up with God's desires and ultimately changing our image so we look and live and love more like Jesus. That is the point, communion with God. As Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, For those God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Or 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is His Spirit. When we grow in relationship with Him so that we can grow in His likeness. You know how some people say that the longer couples are married, the more they start to look like one another? Yeah, have you heard that before? People say that. Now, I'm not sure what it is that causes that effect. Actually, no one really is. If there's something mysterious happening uh, or if it's because they develop similar tastes, they shop at the same stores, eat the same food, use the same products, they actually begin to resemble each other in a way, maybe that's it. Maybe just as we get older, we all start looking similar, Right? <laughs> it's one option, but, but one theory for this phenomenon is that it just seems in our brains like a couple looks the same because we've created a strong association between the two people in our minds, right? As we see two people together regularly, we begin to associate them with the other person, they don't actually look the same, but our brain creates an association that sends a similar signal when we see either of them, leading us to interpret them as being similar simply because the linkage between them is so strong. Or in short, when we see one, we kind of see them both because we're so used to seeing them as a pair. And so in our minds, they resemble each other. Now, while this uh, may or may not tell the whole story, there's certainly truth to the concept that we begin to resemble those that we spend our time with, at least in some ways. I think uh, parents of teenagers can attest to this. Well, if this is the case, then prayer becomes essential for the Christian, doesn't it? Not simply for getting our, our request answered, but spending time Becoming associated with Christ so that we begin to resemble our Savior both in reality and as we conform to His image and in perception as the world sees Him in us. And when we begin to look like and think like Jesus, we'll be equipped to walk through whatever it is that God would have us walk through. However, He answers our prayers just like Jesus did. And so, church, the encouragement today is simply to pray. When we inevitably face trials, pray. Pray to the God who loves you as his own. Pray to the one who has the capacity to answer. Pray big, honest prayers in submission to a sovereign God. And when you're done, pray again. Spend time with the Father that you may look more like the one who has shown us just how to pray. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, who loves us and who has no limits, We come before you today with hundreds of requests between us. God, you know what they are. You know what we desire. Please heal those among us who are sick and hurting. Please restore relationships that are broken. Please draw our loved ones unto yourself. Please intervene and change circumstances that some here are facing. Yet, not our will, but yours be done. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at Grant Memorial Church.